Well, hopefully you're at Psalm 28 by now. If not, you can turn there. While you're turning there, there's a story, I assume that it's true. Back in the 1930s, there were 250 men who were holding on to a blimp. And as they were holding on to that blimp, a big gust of wind came through. And it began to lift up part of that blimp. And so the men holding on to that part of the blimp, some of them decided to let go. Which meant there was less weight, of course, holding that blimp down. So some of the men started to float up in the air. and Because they held on, I guess, in fear and, and didn't want to let go of this thing. And so they're clinging to the cords that are holding this blimp. Well, were holding this blimp down. And now it's floating off up in the air. As the story goes, several of them let go after it had gotten quite high and were severely injured. And one man held on for 45 minutes until he was finally rescued. And when he got down to the ground and reporters came around him, they were like, "What? how in the world did you hold on for 45 minutes to that rope? And this was his response. He said, I didn't hold on to the rope. I just tied it around my waist and the rope held on to me. Well, that's a great illustration of where we find ourselves as we enter into Psalm 28. Let's look at the text together, read through it, and then we'll, we'll make some comments about it. Psalm 28, a psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Do not, be not deaf to me. Lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give me, give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Well, this is a a great psalm, only eight short verses, but packed full of truth. And it kind of finishes, as I'm, I'm sure you've already heard, kind of a set of three psalms that seem to go together, 26, 27, and 28. Again, with this psalm, if you notice, we don't really get any context. We just have of David. And then in the psalm itself, we don't really get enough information to know all of what's going on. We don't know at what point in David's life maybe this took place. Exactly what's going on. Uh, we could speculate a lot and try and fill in the pieces. But there's really not a whole lot here. And in that alone, I, I think there's, there's something that can be helpful to us. We don't get all the details of this particular psalm. But I don't think that's really the point. 
You know, sometimes I find in my own prayer life that I can spend so much time praying about my circumstances and so little time praying about the deeper things underneath it. Does that make sense? I can spend so much time telling God what he already knows about the circumstances and explaining to him why I got frustrated or why I think that person's wrong and all of the details that I never get down to the really the heart issue of the matter. Now, that's not to say, of course, that it's wrong to pray about those things. I mean, we do have the example of Jesus, right? When he taught his disciples how to pray, one of the things he told them to ask for is their daily bread. It doesn't get any more kind of everyday life than that, right? But then we also have, for instance, the example of the Apostle Paul. And when you follow the prayers of Paul throughout the epistles, you don't really see Paul praying about circumstances, Instead, you see him digging deeper and praying for things that are much deeper than that. And I'm challenged in that in my own prayer life, just to think about the things that I'm praying. Do I spend most of my time praying for the circumstantial things? Or do I find myself digging deeper and really pouring out my heart before the Lord as I meditate and I pray So I think that's what we find David doing here. Now some would say maybe because it was used in in communal worship that that's why there's not detail and perhaps that's the case. But I think that there's benefit for us in that fact that, that I think David's thoughts here are going even deeper. So right at the outset, what do we see? Verse 1, he says, to you, O Lord, I call. Now that seems really simple, but it's hugely important. To you, it's very clear, it's very distinct. To you... Oh Lord, I call. Do you know the person to whom we pray, the person to whom we pray to, is as important, and I might say even more important, than our prayers themselves. I mean, where we live in Senegal, five times a day, a call to prayer goes out. And five times a day, very devout Muslims pull out their mat, wash their hands, their feet, their mouths, their face, and they begin to recite their prayers from the Quran. And they pray. And I've heard multiple times believers say, man, can't we just be that dedicated that Muslims pray at least five times a day and here we are. But all of those prayers and all of that effort going in is all directed to the wrong person. So now, no matter how sincere those prayers are, and there are some, honestly, there are some really great prayers in the Quran. They have a lot of truth in them, but they're to the wrong person. And so they avail nothing whatsoever. We don't want to pass by this seemingly simple statement, to you, O Lord, I call. Because it's that's profound and already that ministers to my heart. Where do I go and to whom do I really call when I find myself in difficulty? Where do I turn? What's the first place that I run to? To you, O Lord, I call. And then look at his next words there, my rock. So we have, O Lord, covenant language, Yahweh, and then we turn from that to a very personal, my possessive, my rock. Now when we refer to God as our rock, what, 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 what does that, what does that mean? What are we, what are we focusing in on? I had to look this up. I know I'm putting you on the spot. What does that bring to mind when we refer to God as our rock? Okay, stability. 
Yeah, excellent. A rock, right? And as we look at that through scripture, one of the things that it talks about, God is our rock. Though all of the world were to fall away, the Lord remains. He's immovable. Man, that, that, that says a lot, doesn't it? I mean, the immovable God. I pray to my immovable God. It's powerful. What else? My rock. Excellent. That he is our protection, which is those the two main things that come out in scriptures. You look at God as our rock. He's immovable and that he's he's our security. And that image of a city being built on top of a rock, it's, it's difficult to attack. It's almost seen as impenetrable. It's, it's, it's security. And so here he cries out to my rock, this my God who is secure and he's immovable. Again, there's already something that, that kind of helps me here. And I know maybe these are, I don't want to say overly practical, but You know what I I have a tendency to do as I begin to pray is I just get in the habit of addressing God in the same way every time. I start my prayer in the exact same way every time and it kind of launches me on the path of just rope repetition, you know? I just, dear Heavenly Father, dear Heavenly Father, dear Heavenly Father, dear Heavenly Father, dear Heavenly Father. And here David, even before he's begun to pray, is clearly thinking about this God who he's going to address and the prayer that he's going to offer up to him. And he addresses God in a very specific way. I think there's great help for us in that. As we look through the prayers of Scripture, we find this to be the case, that it's not always just the same thing. Again, that's not to say there's anything wrong with saying, Dear Heavenly Father, but sometimes I just have to stop myself long enough to think about how incredible the statement is that I can call God my Father. Not your Father, not a Father, my Father. My Father. And already my mind is helped and my heart is helped as I go to him and, and, and this, this what can be an act, a, a religious act, begins to move away from that to a real conversation that I'm having with my father, my immovable God, who is secure. Well, he continues from there, to you, O Lord, I call my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. So here we have two pleas that are almost the same. He doesn't want God to be deaf to him and he doesn't want God to be silent. Boy, there's a challenging thought. So I sat and I meditated upon that. Clearly, David's praying these things because at some point in his life, or at least he believes this is a possibility, When he talks about God being deaf, obviously it doesn't mean that God can't hear, but the image, the idea, and the words there is that the idea of keep still, to be silent, or I think really the focus is to be inactive. David is desperate that God not be inactive. Whatever you do, God, don't do nothing. I'm following Justin's example from this morning with my grammar. Whatever you do, Lord, don't sit inactive. Do you see the disposition of David's heart already? 
This is, this is a heart of prayer. This isn't David coming to God saying, God bless my day. Here's my problem. Solve all my problems. He's already prayed to the immovable God. It would be a contradiction to pray to my rock and then ask him to move. Now his, his, his scariest thought is that God would not do something. Don't be deaf, God. Don't be silent. That's his greatest concern. His greatest concern isn't that God do what he wants him to do, but that God be inactive or God be distant from him. That's powerful. Don't be silent. Why? Well, he says, if he does, I become like those who go down to the pit. Now, the pit, what is, what is the pit? Well, that's a good question. And again, if we had more details, it might be helpful. Could he be talking about Sheol? Could he be talking about the grave? Could this be a literal death that David thought he was going to die? Was there sickness involved? Was there physical enemies and all? We don't know. Could it just be figurative language like we say sometimes? You know, if it got any hotter, I'd die or I'm going to starve to death. You know, we don't literally mean we're going to die, but we use that imagery to, to communicate something. Perhaps that's what he's talking about. We don't know, but clearly to David it was serious. And he felt like if God didn't act, that's what was going to happen. There were going to be consequences. So verse 2, what does David do? He says, hear the voice of my plea for mercy. Hear. That word simply means understand. Hear me, God. Understand me. David doesn't just want God to hear his words, but he wants God Look, look at that. Look at the language there. And I love it. I know it's different in different translations. This is the ESV that says the voice of my pleas for mercy. Did you catch that? I think it's a good translation as I've looked at it. It's not just that David wants God to hear his pleas for mercy, but the voice of his pleas for mercy. He wants God to understand what he's saying. Don't just hear my words, but hear what my words fail to communicate. Hear the voice of my plea, right? It's, it's, it's not only what we say, but it, it's how we say it. Hear the plea of my heart. Hear the emotion behind my words. Hear the fear. Hear, hear the joy. Hear what's behind my pleas, Lord. That's good. Prayer isn't just that God hears the words that come out of our mouth, but that he hears the cry of my heart. He hears the voice of my pleas. That idea of a plea for mercy is supplication. And again, David hears it. Mercy, he's not saying that he's not demanding something of God like because he's good enough, now God has to act. Or because he's praying, God now has to jump to these hoops. No, this is a plea for mercy. Unmerited favor from the Lord. So we have that image there in verse 2 the voice of my plea for mercy then as we continue in verse 2 he says when i cry to you for help so now we have another strong language of emotion crying out and then he says when i lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary now obviously later on that that would be reference to the temple and to uh, the holy of holies it doesn't necessarily mean that this was late in David's life. It could have been referring, probably referring to the tabernacle and to the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, which was the symbol of God's presence. 
But what I want to draw our attention to is, is, is the, the outward expression here of David's condition. You look at the language. He says, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. That's not emotionless language, okay? Then he says, I cry to you for help. And then what does that result in? When I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary, I don't think David here is just talking kind of hypothetically, if at some point I were ever to lift up my hands, but I don't ever lift up my hands. I mean, given the the, the Psalms that we have of David and what we know of his life, I think probably in David's prayer life, there were moments when his hands ended up in the air, stretched out to the Lord. What David was praying and what was stirring in his heart showed up in his outward expressions of worship to the Lord, because that's what this is. It is a prayer, but it is worship to God. And it showed up in that, in that outward expression of, 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 of his worship towards the Lord. I, I don't know if you've ever been around someone who's desperate. Desperate. A beggar that's desperate. I know we have people that live in poverty here in America, but if you've been to the third world, if you've been to a place where someone is desperate, Okay, they're not playing a banjo and have their case open on the ground and if you throw money in, great, and if you don't, okay, no big deal. They're not sitting there with a sign around their neck asking you for a meal or something like that. They are desperate for food. They don't know where they're going to get their next meal. They don't know when their next meal will come. They're desperate. And when they identify someone that they think might have the means to provide for them, what do they do? They just sit. Please, sir, could you help me? It's not what they do. What do they do? They hold out their hands. They don't just do that. They don't just hold out their hands. They'll put their hand out and put it right in your face. Please, help me, help me. They're going to touch you. Pull on you. If you start to walk away, they start to pull on you. Don't leave. Help me. Just a little bit of money, just something, just give me, just give me something. Right? The outstretched hand is showing, look, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. Please. I think that's David's attitude and position towards the Lord. My hands are outstretched. Why? Because God, I've got nothing. You are my only hope. I'm like a beggar here, and if you don't act, I'm doomed. There's no, there's no, there's no plan B. There's no plan C. This is it. If you don't act, I am desperate for you, God. You've got to do something. How much would that fuel our praying life if prayer wasn't just plan A or maybe it's plan B sometimes or not. Maybe it's plan C. Sometimes I still Hear the words come out of my mouth. Well, at least I can pray. What desperation would come out of me if in my, in, in my prayers I really understood that I'm desperate for God. That if He doesn't work, nothing will. How long would I linger there? And what would my posture end up being like? I love our community here at Baraka, and I know that I am probably on one end of this spectrum, and I 
I'll just go ahead and confess that. But I want to lovingly challenge you to expressiveness in worship. I think throughout scripture we see people that are moved whether it's in sadness and in desperation to God, they lift up their hands to them and say, God, I need you. I think there are other times in great joy that the heart soars and the hands go up and the, I don't know, the, the eyes go up to heaven and there's delight and there's joy and it shows up. I confess and I'll, you know, I'll stand aside from, I'll confess me personally. Sometimes I'm saddened. By the lack of expressiveness in our worship towards the Lord. I don't understand sometimes how such rich truth can come forward and clear teaching from the Word of God. And sometimes you look and it doesn't even seem like anybody's awake. I mean, I don't need anybody to stand up and, you know, preach it, brother, and wave a handkerchief or anything like that. But something that says, yes, my heart in me responds to that. Or as we sing in worship, that there would be a response in me. That it should stir in me. I think it's normal and natural. It certainly was in the life of David. And I don't think here that this is an emotionless plea to the Lord. I don't think he's saying, maybe I could lift my hands up, but I'm just going to sit. No, he's desperate. And it shows up in his actions. He's desperate for the Lord to act. And so his hands are uplifted. He's crying out. He's pleading with the Lord. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. Have you been there? Have you been there? Is, are there moments when you're there? I'm not saying you have to be there every Sunday or that every song you need to lift your... I'm not even telling you what you need to do, but I'm just saying, I, I think in a good, healthy way that as you grow in your intimacy with the Lord, there should be moments that you're so desperate for Him that you're not sitting in your, your armchair anymore, but you're on your face before God and you're pleading with Him and there's tears streaming down your face and you're saying, God, you've got to do something. And then there are other moments where your heart is just so overjoyed with who God is and His love for you that you just can't sit down. And your, your, your hands go up or your, our song rises up in your heart and you're singing and you don't care who hears you. If, if my affections are so lightly stirred for God that I can just remain nice and controlled all the time, that would be a concern for me. David here is deep in his pleas, hands uplifted, crying out with God, pleading with him. Why? Well, verse 3 says, Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the work, workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Now, this isn't the same as Psalm 1. David's not saying, I'm putting myself in the path of the wicked or I'm sitting in the seat of the scoffer. That's not what we're talking about. This is passive here. David's feeling like he's going to get drug away. He's going to get taken away with the wicked. Now therein lies another challenge to us. Why, why would David feel like he needs to pray that? Does that happen? Does it happen that the innocent get taken away with the wicked? Does that, does that happen? I mean, I'll be honest with you as I read this and I, I got to this verse. In fact, there's these stretch of verses here. If I'm writing this psalm, I maybe start out with 
verse 1 and then I'll kind of maybe do verse 2 and then chop out 3, 4, 5 and then just jump to 6. Because there's stuff in here that I'm like, why, why do you pray that, David? The truth of the matter is, and Scripture bears this out from beginning to end, that our sin has consequences. And part of the reason my heart doesn't like this is because I want to believe my sin doesn't have consequences. But it does. And the consequences aren't just for me. People around me suffer the consequences of my sin. Right? I mean, this is, this is in, 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 in covenant Israel. I mean, you can't read the Old Testament and go, nope, only the guy that sins gets it in the end. Can you read the history of Israel and say that? Of course not. There are times in this broken, fallen world stained by sin that the innocent are taken away with the corrupt and the unjust. David's right to plea. He's right to cry out to God. Don't drag me off. Don't let me be swept away. Don't let me be taken away, Lord. We see it even in our day and time. How many times do we see kids whose parents live lives of sin and they're left in the wake of that and maybe they end up in foster care or something like that and they just kind of get taken away with those that are wicked David doesn't lighten things up. He says these people speak peace to their neighbors when evil is in their hearts. That shouldn't surprise us because the testimony of Scripture is that evil comes from our hearts. Right? I mean, it's not, it'd be easy to point these guys out and go, oh, who would speak peace and have evil in their hearts? Oh, well, me. Actually, I do that. That's actually part of southern etiquette, is it not, right? You don't actually say what you think about someone. You just keep that in your heart to yourself while you say nice things to them. And then when they're not there, you say those types of things. You speak those words of deceit and slander. And they have consequences. So then verse 4, David does this, this thing here where 4 and 5, there's this kind of you know, play on words or imagery here. He says, give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due. So you have work, this idea of work, deeds, the work of their hands. And then what does he want? He wants them to get their wage. They worked and he's like, it's payday. I want want payday to come. And for them to get what they've worked hard for. And then it's contrasted in verse 5 with whose work? The Lord's work, because they do not regard the works of the Lord. So here you have works of wickedness in comparison with the perfect works of the Lord. They're busy about their works, and while they're busy about their works, they're disregarding the works of the Lord and the work of His hands. Well, this isn't anything new to us. We we see this in Scripture. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans, right? That instead of looking at the works of God's hands all around us, we deny that and we turn away and we run to what is evil. 
It is a challenge, though, as we look at this. And here David is praying that these wicked people would get their due reward. Okay, David, I don't. How does that work? I mean, how do we pray that they get their their due reward? Well, I think one of the things that we need to keep in mind, it's really important, is that David is not saying, they're wicked people, Lord, I'll wipe them out. They're wicked people, I'll tell them how wicked they are. No, all of this is going back into whose hands? To the Lord's hands. This is a plea for the Lord to exact His judgment. And when God exacts judgment, it is always just and right and good. The truth of the matter is, is that sometimes we can begin to think of God as kind of impartial. But he's not. He is a God of justice. God rejoices when evil is punished. He can't tolerate evil. He does not tolerate sin. Not in any way, shape or form does he tolerate it. And in our minds, you might think, but God's a God of love. Well, the fact that he's a God of love necessitates the fact that he is also a God who punishes sin. Right? We looked this morning, talked this morning, John 3.16. We know that passage, right? We know at least John 3.16 and most of the people in America, maybe most people in the South know John 3.16. But where does this great love of God that was demonstrated in the giving of His Son quickly run to? Judgment. Because light came into the world and what did the world do? It hated it. And ran back to its sinful darkness. In fact, the fact that God loves us and extends mercy to us increases that judgment. Because the work of the Lord has been ignored. All of our sin is against a holy God. But this holy God then in loving mercy has extended kindness to us and loved us. And when that love is scorned, we shouldn't take that lightly. We shouldn't take that lightly at all. So David doesn't pray, I'm going to show them, I'm going to get them, I'm going to put bumper stickers all over my car to tell them how evil they are, or post all kinds of stuff on Facebook and social media to tell them how wicked they are. No, but he puts this over to the Lord and he pleads to the Lord that the wicked get their just reward. I think it's much in line with the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray that his kingdom come and his will be done. Here on earth as it is in heaven. So then verse 6. Between 5 and 6 something happens. What happens? I don't know. Some say that David just begins to praise God. For what he's confident is going to happen. I firmly believe something could have happened between verse 5 and 6. I mean, I've read enough missionary biographies and enough times where missionaries were totally desperate, didn't have food to eat, no money left, whatever, and they get together as a family and they're praying and then while they're praying, knock, knock, knock at the door, they go and answer the door and what's sitting there? The exact amount of money they needed, the food that they had needed for that next meal or whatever. Does that happen? I don't know. We don't know what happened. But what we do have is this beautiful response from David. Verse 6, blessed be God. Praise the Lord, is what David says. The Lord deserves praise. That's the idea. The Lord deserves praise. The next word is for. So it's going to tell us why. Why does the Lord deserve this praise? 
Why is God to be blessed? He has heard. Can we, can we just think about that for a minute? He has heard. Same idea there. He's understood. Our God is a God that hears. Our God hears. If we were to let that simple truth just just wash over us this next week, our God hears. I pray to a God who hears. How much motivation, how much fuel would that give us in our life of prayer? How much more motivation would it give me if I really thought that God intently listens when I pray? You know what I do? I make God like me. I think He listens like I listen. TV's on. There's music somewhere. Kids making noise. I've got the computer in front of me. My phone's vibrating or making some other noise. And my wife's trying to talk to me, uh uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. That's just kind of the way I view it. You know, God's up in heaven. He's trying to orchestrate the angels. He's got all of creation to deal with. He's fighting demons and Satan and all this stuff. And then somewhere in the midst of that, there's my little wimpy voice. Oh, God, would you please help? And he's just kind of, okay, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, okay, gotcha, Eric, uh-huh. But that's not the image. The the image, look at what he says, for he has heard, again he uses that same phrase, he's heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. He hears you. When you pray, your God hears you. The sovereign God of the universe, the immovable rock who is totally secure, devotes all of his attention. How? I don't know. But 100% of his intention is towards you and he hears you. That's incredible. No matter what I pray. No matter how complicated the problem, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how much my heart hurts, every time I say amen, I can say, blessed be the Lord. He heard me. He heard me. Because He doesn't hear me based upon how good I am. He doesn't hear me based upon my performance or how much I can wax and wane in my prayer and how many Christian phrases I can string together and verses I can connect and choosing all the right words. He hears me because of Christ. He hears me. He doesn't just hear what comes out of my mouth. He hears what my heart cries. It's so beautiful and so helpful. God hears. He hears. He he heard the voice of my plea for mercy. So verse 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. These seem to be the very things that David needed, right? In the beginning. Why he cries out to him as his rock. Notice that David doesn't say his circumstances have changed. We never get that indication anywhere in here. That his circumstances have changed because he's not praying on a circumstantial level. He's praying for deeper things. Whatever the situation is, 
God is my strength. I can't stand. I'll get drug away. But God is going to be my strength. He's going to hold me. And He's going to be my shield. Then he continues in verse 7. And he says, in Him, my heart trusts. In Him. That's the theology of it. In Him. That Him, like we already talked about, makes all the difference. If it's the wrong Him, there is no help. It's got to be the Him who he has revealed himself to be. David is praying to the covenant God of Israel. Not to one of the idols, not to one of the gods of the nations. He's praying to him, in him, only, ever, always, nowhere else, exclusively in him, in him. Got to have that right. It's got to be in him. It can't be in her or in it or in them. It's in him, in him. Him, and then it moves beyond just that theology to what? In Him, that God who's revealed Himself, the covenant God of Israel, my heart, my heart trusts. Not my head, not my intellect, my inner man. Here, deep down, my heart trusts in Him. Heart trusts in Him. Now, there's so much I could say about that because the Lord's just worked me over with that verse. I mean, it is so easy to pray, for lack of better way to put it, just kind of up here. But when I begin to ask myself, what, what is it that my heart just isn't accepting to be true about God? What is it that's going on in here? Why is it that I, why is it that I keep going back to that same sin? What is it in here? And I wrestle with the Lord before His Word and I cry out to Him knowing that if He doesn't help me at that level, nothing's gonna change. My circumstances could change, but I'll be the same. I need my heart to trust in Him. Deep down in here, I need to trust in Him. I give you a simple example of this from my own life. I tell you what, I struggle sometimes when I get ready to teach. I struggle because I want you guys to like me. I really do. You're kind of scary. You've sat all this time under such solid teaching. And here I come along. I didn't go to, I mean, I did like a semester in seminary, you know? I'm out someplace in Africa and I come back and I'm looking out and there's people out here that know God's word way better than I do. And I start thinking, it gets in my head and I start thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't say that because so-and-so probably won't like that. Or maybe I should say this, I know they'll like that. Then afterwards, the whole thing can just become... So all that to say, my prayer can then just be, God, help me. To give my mouth over to you and to give my hands over to you and to speak through this time. That's kind of up here. But when I wrestle that out with the Lord and I'm like, Lord, I fear people. In my heart, I'm still convinced if I earn the praise of people, it would be better. It would be better than you getting the glory. I believe that. I don't know why I believe that. It's because my heart's wicked, God. Help me. David says that his heart trusts 
the Lord, trusts the Lord, not did trust, but continues to trust in the Lord. And then he makes this declaration, and I am helped. I'm helped. I'm helped because my circumstances change. No, because everything's clear now. No, but because my heart is trusting in the Lord. And so I'm helped. And so then what happens? Because the wrestling was on the heart level. The praise then is where? On the heart level. The praise is on the heart level because he wrestles these things out with the Lord at that heart level and his heart is helped. Now what does his heart want to do? Exult. There's a song in me. It's a song of thanks to the Lord. I want to give thanks to him because I've been helped in here. It's not, it's not just making a list. And again, I'm not saying those things are bad or that they're wrong or that they're not helpful. Please don't get me don't take me in the wrong way. But oh, when we, we plead with God from our heart, we're honest before Him, we allow Him to dig deep into us, and He exposes our heart and says, this is what you're not believing about me. This is what you need to trust about me. And we finally hand that over and we say, God, I would trust you with my heart. And then He begins to change us. Things that we thought were impossible, He begins to change. And In us, there is this cry of joy that comes from our heart and we exalt in Him and we give thanks. So then He turns from this this relationship with the Lord that seems so personal and it becomes corporate. The Lord is the strength of His people. He is the saving refuge of His anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. I don't know what it was like to be David. I don't know if he's king at this point. I can't even imagine the weight of that, leading a nation. I can't imagine the weight of knowing that you're leading God's chosen people. I can't imagine the weight of knowing that you were anointed as God's chosen king to lead this theocracy. I I mean, that just blows my mind. But David, in all of that, had to believe that God was able not only to help him, but to help all of Israel in the exact same way. You know, I can pray these things for myself, and I'll wrestle with that enough. But can I tell you, at times my heart breaks to try and pray that for my kids. Try and pray that for my wife, and to believe that it's best. To believe that it's good. I mean, I'll tell you what, when I was teaching, it was easy to use via this little saying, you know, you, you prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. That's nice and quaint little thing to say, but when it's my kid, it hurts. I want to change all the circumstances. I want to pray all the bad stuff out of the way in nothing but smooth roads, no speed bumps, no potholes, nothing. But to pray in this same way, to believe that for my family, to believe that for our community here at Baraka. You know what? Maybe it's not that God has smooth sailing for us, but this would be better that our heart trusts in God. Then we will be helped. Then we'll be helped. What a challenge. What a great little song. Nine simple verses. We haven't even really begun to touch on all the depth that's there. But what a challenge.